You're listening to Simply Put, a podcast from FHN Financial. I'm your host, Will Comperl. Our guest today will be Gray Bowles, Senior Vice President of Portfolio Strategy with FHN Financial, who's going to discuss his thoughts on the banking industry. We'll also give a quick market update on what's driving financial markets now and what you should look out for in the weeks and months ahead. Stay tuned. Coming up soon, our interview with Gray Bowles, Senior Vice President of Portfolio Strategy with FHN Financial. But first, a quick market update. June CPI inflation came in cooler than expected this week, prompting a bond rally particularly at the shorter end of the yield curve. The improvement is a bit of a mirage for two reasons. First, headline inflation is being compared with June of last year when energy prices were elevated from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This will fade out from the 12-month math starting with July data. Second, and most importantly, the Fed's view of underlying inflation, which excludes the noisiest parts, is still too high. All in all, this report is a step in the right direction, but not enough to shift the Fed's tightening path just yet. Two-year Treasury yields reached a cycle peak of 5.07% last week following a couple months of stronger-than-expected economic data. Twos are a bit down now from that peak, but certainly poised to break through the 5% barrier again from any combination of upside surprises to economic data. The longer end of the yield curve has seen less movement this year, especially the last couple months. Tens broke through 4% temporarily last week, but are more likely to sustain at a lower range with inflation expectations under control. Treasury has been replenishing its cash balance with some catch-up issuance of T-bills following the early June debt ceiling resolution a process some analysts feared would lead to a combination of higher bill yields, declining bank reserves, and general market volatility. So far, this has not come to pass. The Fed's reverse repo facilities providing a cash source without a huge drawdown in bank reserves. As this issuance continues, we'll be monitoring the bill market, reverse repo balances, and total bank reserves. That's all for the market update this time. Now, our interview with Gray Bowles. Our guest today is Gray Bowles, Senior Vice President for Portfolio Strategy with FHN Financial. Gray, thanks for coming on the podcast. Will, thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. Our topic today is the banking industry, specifically in the aftermath of some regional bank failures beginning in March of this year. So we're recording this in July, about four months after the first dominoes started to fall. Now, before we hear your thoughts, Gray, on what's important to look out for the rest of this year and onward, I think it's helpful to understand the root causes of those bank failures that began in March. There's been relative calm the last couple months, but there are still lingering fears of some potential future banking issues and a worry that what we saw in March is just the tip of the iceberg. So Gray, explain to us what was at the core of March bank tensions. Uh, yeah, sure, Will. That's a, that's a very loaded question there because I think there's actually a lot of nuance uh, that goes into the answer. Uh, the way that I've been thinking about this is you know, really breaking it down into two pieces, one being some macro factors that I think are actually impacting the overall marketplace, i.e. banks, but to varying degrees. Uh, and then you also have some very institution-specific factors, or, or I might say idiosyncratic factors, 
uh, that actually caused the failures of kind of the three large regional banks we saw in March. Um, so, you know, to really unpack this, you know, we could go pretty far back. I'd like to stay succinct, so I'll try and keep it um, uh, relatively to the point here. But but let's just start with the macro factors. Um, and really the first one that, that I think is playing a very large role and then is continuing to play a large role in the overall industry um, is really this unwinding of pandemic era liquidity. And we're seeing this very specifically at banks via the deposit runoff that's been happening really over the past 12 uh, to 15 months. Uh, just to kind of put a little bit of meat on the bone for you, um, deposits actually grew over $2 trillion, and that's trillion with a T, um, since the beginning of 2020, really due to the enormous amount of fiscal stimulus we saw, as well as some monetary stimulus as well. Now, since last fall, we've actually seen a reversal of that. We've seen deposits drop at financial institutions over a trillion dollars so far. Uh, that's obviously the biggest decline in deposits we've seen in the banking industry, um, and it's all happened in the past 15 months or so. But just to give you a little more color, that still means there's about $800 billion of excess savings left on bank balance sheets, really above the pre-pandemic trend. Now, most of that's at the money center banks, but there's still about $100 to $2 billion in the community and regional bank space. Um, so I'm not necessarily suggesting we're going to lose another trillion dollars in deposits, although I do think we're going to still see uh, some runoff over the next couple of quarters, uh, maybe one or two there. The second macro piece is going to be this notion of lower asset valuations, uh, and this is very much driven by really this most aggressive Fed tightening cycle we've seen in the last 40 years. The Fed's raised rates 500 basis points in the course of 12 to 15 months. Now, kind of couple that with, with what we saw with this deposit growth early in 2020. So banks were essentially flush with cash. Their balance sheets were effectively ballooning really at the lows of the interest rate cycle. This was really leading to some net interest margin compression, and the approach that, that many took was to add longer duration assets. Now, maybe that was fixed in some securities, uh, but also in loans, and, and people kind of pushed fixed income into this camp, but a lot of loans were made during this time, too, with, with some longer durations. And so once the Fed began that tightening cycle, uh, these asset valuations dropped very quickly. Um, so, so now you have these ingredients for what I would think is a very risky setup for the banking industry. Now, to get to your specific question about the actual bank failures, uh, this is where those internal factors or those idiosyncratic factors, I think, really played a major role um, leading to the ultimate failure of these three banks. Now, I think the primary risk that Silicon Valley, First Republic, uh, and Signature Bank had to some degree was a very concentrated depositor base. Uh, and this very much was a key driver in what was ultimately a liquidity run on these banks. The unwinding that was happening of these deposits that we talked about kind of in this macro sphere um, really were exacerbated 
by the concentrated depositor base that these institutions had. Um, so just a quick example. So Silicon Valley Bank was taken over by the FDIC on a Friday, I think the day before they had lost $40 billion in deposits in four hours. That is unprecedented. Um, it would have been very difficult for anybody to survive that type of scenario in, in any set of circumstances. So you had concentrated depositor bases, and you also have this ease of moving money. Now, this is something that's a little more nuanced that, that I suspect many banks haven't really given much thought to over the last few years, but they're definitely giving a lot of thought to now via its impact on deposit duration. So I don't necessarily want to go down the rabbit hole here, but just to give you a little context on what I'm talking about, um, mobile banking has effectively changed the game and how quickly customers can shift funds. Now, given the you know pre or post financial crisis setup where interest rates are effectively zero for the past 15 years, it hasn't really played that much of a role, but now you turn the interest rate environment up and give customers a very quick ability to, to move funds. You pair that with risk that's happening in the marketplace, especially for a specific institution, and you ultimately get this, this run on the bank. Uh, so bottom line, really to kind of sum up kind of the, the overall theme here, uh, the macro factors that contributed not caused, but contributed to these failures, I think are prevalent again to some degree across the industry. But, and I think this is a, I think this is a big but, each of these banks had very specific risks internal to them that are not prevalent across the industry. So if you ask me, uh, do I see more bank failures due to deposit runs today? Uh, the answer is no, no, I don't. Um, in the current climate. Now there are risk type scenarios that could pop up, but but as it stands today, I think the industry um, is likely done with deposit runs. So that's a really interesting point to end on, this idea that the liquidity issues that, that kind of started all of this back in March uh, seem to be in a more stable place. Um, and I kind of want to add just a little bit of depth to, to that idea of the rapid deposit withdrawals in this macro environment, because I think once Silicon Valley Bank failed in March, uh, it got a lot of depositors thinking, well, if this bank failed, could my bank be next? And so there was a, a lot of solvency concerns that exacerbated this issue, of course, that interacted with the balance sheet issues you, you, uh, you just described. But adding on top of that, there was sort of this second phase where deposits, even if uh, depositors, even if they were totally convinced that their bank was solvent, they realized they could get higher returns uh, by shifting their money into something like a money market fund, right? Which is uh, very safe, it's cash-like, and uh, it's a lot more attractive than keeping money in a savings account at a bank that for a long time was giving rates close to zero. Um, but so when we've talked recently and in a lot of your recent writing, um, you seem to be uh, not as concerned about these ongoing liquidity risks of banks, even though that seems to be the market commentary focus is people are looking for the next Silicon Valley bank. Uh, so as I understand it, your focus is more on uh, funding risk and profitability. So can you walk us through these dynamics? Yeah, sure. And I think 
that's some good points uh, that, that you made there, Will. Uh, liquidity risk is still real. Uh, my focus is very much moving from availability risk. So do I have available liquidity to the mix of my liquidity that ultimately translates into my forward-looking profitability? Now, you're right. For the most part, banks are still very focused, and the primary concern is making sure they have enough liquidity and deposit bases uh, to sustain continued runoff. And you can see that because CD specials are being run now well north of 5%. Uh, the interest that the banks are paying on interest-bearing deposits are also rising very rapidly. And this just gives you a sense uh, of this concern that some of these banks have. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but we're seeing these outflows, and I think you were right to point out that there was a very big shift in these outflows post-Silicon Valley, um, and you can see that showing up in the data. Um, but I think what we're going to continue to see from a liquidity availability perspective is this, this deposit runoff um, is going to be more of a deposit walk, not a deposit run. And I think Jim Bianco said that, and I think he's absolutely right. Um, and so while banks may be struggling to maintain deposits, they still obviously have access to, to several wholesale funding needs, whether it be the home loan bank, brokered CD markets, the Fed discount window. They even have access to the, the new BTLF program by the Fed. So, um, Yes, uh, you're right. I'm, I'm not as concerned with the availability of liquidity, but just the the new mix of liquidity and how that's going to impact cost. So when I talk about funding mix, I really try and think about the breakdown between non-interest bearing deposits, interest bearing deposits, CDs and wholesale funding. And now we can go back in time a little bit here if you if you give me a little bit of slack and look at the post GFC, so post great financial crisis, 2008 until roughly, let's call it 2020. Um, and the funding mix there changed materially from what happened pre-financial crisis. So why is that? Well, it's because of the ZERP policy from the Fed, zero interest rate policy. When rates are tied to zero, you get a very big increase in non-interest bearing deposits and interest bearing deposits because they're both effectively zero. Your wholesale funding and your CD funding mixes tend to go down. So your overall funding costs are relatively low and banks had that for the better part of 15 years. If you go pre great financial crisis, so let's call it 2000 to 2008, the funding mix was actually quite different. We had lower non-interest bearing deposits. We had higher wholesale funding mixes. We had higher amounts of CDs just because the interest rates were higher and people, you know, use those higher interest rates and it funded balance sheets differently. Now, the cost structure of funding is different between those two models, the pre and the post GFC. So now enter kind of the current climate. So the Fed's raised rates 500 basis points. We have liquidity stress in the market that's made its way into the media. So now it's in the public zeitgeist, if you will. And so now we have this shift that's happening in deposit mix away from non-interest bearing into longer term CDs, into money markets, forcing banks to wholesale fund their balance sheets more. And so now you're getting this very significant 
rise in funding costs. And so I ran some math. Uh, I'm not going to go into the weeds of this math, but let's just say cost of funds for banks today on average is about one and a half percent. Um, if we assume a deposit mix shift similar to what we saw pre-GFC, we can get that cost of funds rate up pretty close to 3% in a couple of quarters, maybe three quarters. That's a 100 to 150 basis point rise in funding cost versus where we are now, which is also significantly higher than where we were last year. And so it's this funding cost aspect that I think is going to have a big impact on profitability. Now, when we think about profitability, 2022 was actually a very great year for bank earnings. Uh, the PP&R, so pre-provisioned net revenue, which is a proxy for core earnings, grew significantly. Uh, net interest margins grew significantly. Why is that? Well, because asset-sensitive balance sheets got to reprice higher with the Fed, all the while they were keeping their deposit betas relatively low. And so now these tailwinds of 2022, if you will, are turning into headwinds. Our asset yields, the growth rate in our asset yields have actually slowed quite a bit. And I'll give you a couple of reasons why. One is loan growth is slowing, so we're not putting on as many higher yielding loans as we were. Two, the floating rate loans in our balance sheet have started to stagnate, if you will, because the Fed's not hiking rates 75 basis points at a time now. They're, now they're at 25 basis points every other meeting. And so our asset yield growth has slowed while we're facing this rise in funding costs, which is ultimately putting pressure on our net interest margins, and it's ultimately going to translate into lower earnings. Uh, just to give you a little context here. so. And, and there's some nuance here because you can kind of bifurcate the large money center banks from the community and regional banks. And there's reasons for that probably out of the scope of this conversation. But, but let's just uh, tailor this to the community and regional bank space. Uh, net interest margins actually already contracted in the first quarter of this year in the neighborhood of 10 to 20 basis points, depending on kind of the asset range you have. Uh, PP&R, again, that proxy for core revenue actually shrank in the first quarter for banks under $100 billion in assets, shrank 7 to 10%. So earnings have already started uh, to roll over here. It sounds like the circumstances that led up to that, this, this kind of idea that uh, banks approached their balance sheets uh, differently during a zero interest rate environment. And then suddenly the Fed uh, hiked 500 basis points in, in about a year. Um, banks, you know, their approach to their balance sheet couldn't adjust uh, painlessly over such a, a quick period of time. And really, you know, as, as far as we are concerned at FHN Financial, the Fed is going to keep rates high for a while. So it sounds like uh, the issues that you just described aren't going away anytime soon. As long as monetary policy uh, really stays sufficiently restrictive um, and the Fed keeps rates high, uh, there is still going to be this pressure on banks. So where do you see the trajectory heading for all these concerns? And what are you monitoring closely uh, to kind of see the timing or magnitude of, of any, anything potentially breaking over the next six to 12 months? So I, I'll, I'll say this about the overall banking industry. Yes, there are risks, and we've, we've talked about a lot of them. Uh, by no means do I think those risks 
implicate all banks in the industry. I do think there are balance sheets that are set up to have success in the current marketplace. Um, I, I kind of think about this as there are going to be winners and losers that are, are coming out of this current setup. Um, and I really think about balance sheet flexibility being really a key component. Now, that's kind of a, a, a broad, jargony term, but, but let me just give you a little bit of color there. So excess capital. I think excess capital today is very key for banks. It allows them to be flexible in restructuring their balance sheet to mitigate some of this margin erosion, the ability to reprice some of their assets, whether it be bonds, whether it be loans, into today's market yields can offset um, some of the margin pressure that they're likely going to face. And now that comes with the cost. It comes with a loss, per se. Um, but if we have excess capital in hand, we have the ability to do that. Uh, I think having a core deposit base, a core stable deposit base at that, so diversified deposits, obviously, no concentrated deposits don't turn out very good. Uh, diversified deposits in terms of repayal, um, and I think that allows you to be more flexible in how you manage your balance sheet. Um, I think a larger allocation to floating rate loan books. So if you have a little bit more flexibility in being able to reprice your loans faster, um, that's going to give you some benefit to, to offset some margin pressure. Um, loan to deposit ratios, I think, have been kind of an interesting component because they've really been shrinking, um, you know, for the last 15 years to some degree. I think if you look at the money center banks, they're roughly sitting at 50% loan to deposit ratio. Um, the regionals and community banks are obviously higher, somewhere in the 70% the range. I think the banks that you're seeing that are having the most success here probably have loan to deposit ratios in that 70 to 90 percent range, maybe 75 to 95. I don't want to get too tied up in the actual numbers, but you have enough loans to generate good earnings power for the institution, but you don't have too many loans that limit you on the liquidity side. If you have a loan to deposit ratio of 120 percent, you are very much at the mercy of your funding mix, and that can put some pressure on, on earnings. Uh, the other thing to think about, I think, is a higher percentage of fee income. Um, and so what I mean by that is, you know, businesses that are generating earnings that are outside of your margin business. So, you know, today, industry as a whole, the percent of fee income is actually relatively low, probably in the 20 to 25 percent range. That, that obviously, again, is, is differentiated between banks of different asset sizes. Uh, if you go back to the first quarter of 2022, that number was almost 40% because interest rates were so low, there wasn't a lot of margin to be had, so the fee income made up a larger portion. So uh, fee income, I think, is a big uh, benefit there. Uh, diversification in the loan book, uh, this is all about credit. And I know we don't necessarily want to go down the, the credit rabbit hole here, but being diversified in terms of segment, in terms of loan type, in terms of borrower type, uh, I think could be very helpful. Now, right now, and, and this is kind of leading into your purview a little bit, you know, the economy looks relatively stable. Um, economic growth is relatively strong. Uh, I tend to think in terms of the outlook. So let's think about, you know, the Fed, and people know this, the Fed's policy tends to operate with a lag. Let's call it 
three to six months, maybe even longer. So the rate hikes they have today, you aren't really actually going to see ramifications for the next six months. Think about translating that into what's happening in the banking space today, especially post Silicon Valley. The issues that happened in March haven't fully been reflected in the overall economy yet because there's going to be this lag. And so this isn't suggesting there's a big downturn coming, but it is suggesting there is risk. Um, and just because things are, are growing and fine today, we are seeing kind of the early stages of credit contraction, which ultimately have historically led to slowdowns in economic growth. Uh, so as we wrap things up, I want to. I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think is the most important takeaway for investors uh, from from the topics that we discussed here. Uh, and I'll just put forth kind of a, a question that that maybe prompts um, you know some interesting ideas from you, and then feel free to take in whatever direction you'd like. But um, is there a chance that these conditions will cause an issue for banks without? causing an issue for the economy. So could we see um, a so-called profits recession with banks um, without leading to credit contractions that, that kind of flow downstream to the larger economy? Um, and of course, we've seen for maybe a number of reasons we, we won't get into right now that um, credit conditions, according to the Senior Loan Officer Survey, um, have been tightening, but we are still seeing fairly decent economic growth. So, uh, you know, for the the kind of average investor, could this just be an issue isolated to the banking sector? Yes, but um, I think is the way that, that I would answer that. So a profitability recession for banks does not necessarily lead to an economic contraction. I think the, the ramifications of why that's happening I think could bleed into the overall economy. So we talked about liquidity, we talked about profitability. Credit is, is really a whole nother animal, but credit really is the answer to your question. Uh, because what would cause a very significant contraction in lending is credit quality deteriorating. Uh, we haven't seen that yet. If you think about what's happening um, in charge-offs, they're still historically low. Yes, we're starting to see loan loss provisions rising to some degree, but but not significantly enough to where you think there's going to be a risk. Um, I have a lot of conversations with bankers around the country, and just anecdotally, the, the the answer to the question is, what are you seeing in terms of loan growth? Is that, you know, we would like to make more loans, but we don't necessarily have the demand we would want. So it, to me, right now, at least for some conversations I've had. It's not necessarily a function of retraction in supply. It's more of a reduction in demand. Now, I think that could that could shift very quickly, because if you think about credit quality and you think about community and regional banks and you think about what their loan book looks like, it's concentrated in CRE. It's got 30 to 40 percent in CRE. And we know CRE is probably going to be the sector that that is going to have potential credit problems. And so ultimately, does that cause banks to pull back lending more that fades into the overall economy? Um, you know, I think the answer is probably yes. Uh, you know, I, I, we can go back and say, you know, is it different this time? Yes, the Fed's hiked rates 500 basis points. The economy looks like we're going to soft land this thing. Yes, bank lending's slowing, but I think that's fine. Uh, historically, that's not accurate, right? Historically, 
uh, as time passes, that contraction in bank lending, that contraction in overall credit has a material impact on the economy. Now, does that mean massive recession? Probably not. Does it mean, you know, small recession? Perhaps. So 2024, I think, becomes somewhat of an interesting year. And I think there's there's a lot of nuance to that answer that, that we probably don't have enough time to get into today. Well, Gray, thanks so much for all of that. You've given us a lot of interesting things to think about. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm sure we'll have you on again in the future. Awesome. Thanks, Will. That was Gray Bowles, Senior Vice President for Portfolio Strategy with FHN Financial. Listening back to the conversation, what really sticks in my mind is the idea that the banking industry's adjustment to this higher rate environment is going to play out slowly over time rather than immediately. So just because there's relative calm now does not mean a significant credit contraction is not going to happen eventually. In the more immediate future, with the June CPI data already released, investor focus turns to the FOMC meeting on July 26th. A 25 basis point hike is virtually certain, but it will be the subtleties in the FOMC statement and Chair Powell's press conference that will help set expectations for the September meeting and onward. Markets currently show a lack of confidence the Fed funds rate will reach the 5.5% to 5.75% range seen in the June dot plot. We firmly expect the Fed will reach this range this year with decent probability of one or two more hikes earlier next year. Because of this, we believe there's an upside risk to rates and the shorter end of the yield curve the rest of this year. Corporate earnings season also continues after this week, giving a complete snapshot of the first full quarter following March bank tensions. It'll be important to focus on financial firms, of course, especially in the context of what Gray discussed earlier this episode. But we'll also be keeping a close eye on how corporations are viewing consumer pushback against higher prices something we saw in this week's Beige Book. This has been an ongoing theme and can give some good insights into how corporations may or may not be prioritizing price versus volume. On the data front, the retail sales report July 18th will give the last major piece of data before the advanced release of second quarter GDP July 27th. Right now, the Atlanta Fed's GDP tracker is estimating 2.3% quarterly annualized growth. That's all for today's episode. Thanks again for listening. I'm Will Compernal, macro strategist with FHN Financial. This episode was edited by Bill Stanfield. Don't forget to like and subscribe to Simply Put wherever you get your podcasts. Email simplyput at fhnfinancial.com with any questions, comments, or concerns. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Views expressed herein accurately reflect the speaker's personal views about the data, news, trends, events, etc. discussed herein or any subject securities or issuers. No part of their compensation was, is, or will be, directly or indirectly, related to any specific recommendations or views expressed. FHN Financial, through First Horizon Bank or its affiliates, offers investment products and services. Investment products are not FDIC insured, have no bank guarantee, and may lose value.